Lord, you tell us that the one to whom you will look is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, the one who trembles at your word. You tell us this in Isaiah. And so, God, we want to come before you now with a humble heart. We acknowledge that you are supreme, you are God, you are the source of all that is good, all that is true, and we confess our need, our need to know you, our need to be instructed this morning, our need to be changed by your grace. And Lord, we ask that you would enable us by your spirit to respond to your word as we should, that we would fear you, that we would trust you, that we would submit to you, that we would obey you, that we would believe your word and turn from our own foolish ways and allow your spirit to do your work of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. So God, we pray that you'd make our hearts receptive and responsive now to your word, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I, I want you to imagine with me for a minute a scenario. Um, I went to the car show in Ottawa last night uh, with my family. We saw a lot of cars, and we didn't just see a lot of cars. We met or saw a lot of people who also knew a lot about those cars. Um, it's not just the vehicles that get shown off at, at those things. People know a lot about how those things work. But I want you to imagine with me for a minute two neighbors who both go out and buy a high-performance sports car, and they bring it home and park it in the garage. And the first neighbor, the guy who lives on the south side of the road, he pulls in that high-performance sports car, and then he packs it full of all of his Christmas decorations. You know, the, the snowman that he likes to put out in the front yard, half-used rolls of wrapping paper, some lights, decorations, all that stuff, crams it full, and then he leaves it there, and he rides his bike to work every day. 12 miles uphill both ways, snowing every day, you know, that sort of a thing. And then he kind of gets a little disappointed. He says, you know what, it really wasn't worth buying that car. I don't know what's the big deal about these cars. Well, the other guy, he doesn't do what the first man does. And the neighbor on the other side of the road, he brings that sports car home, and he welds a trailer hitch onto the back bumper, and he starts pulling his horse trailer with it. And he burns up the transmission and you know, bends the frame out of whack. And he's really disappointed, too. He complains that this car really didn't perform up to his expectations. It really didn't meet his needs. I think we would all agree that these two men, both of them, didn't understand what it was that they actually possessed. And they didn't understand what it was for. And sadly, that's how many people today approach the institution of marriage. We just finished, um, over the last year plus, a series of teaching through the book of Genesis. That's what we usually do here at our church is take books of the Bible but for the next several weeks, we're taking a break from that just to focus on what is God's design for the family, for humans, whether we are single or married, whether we have children or whether we are older, what is God's will and word for us? And today we're going to be addressing the idea or this concept of marriage. You know, we can easily fall into the trap of allowing our minds to be conformed to the way that the world sees things. And the world, sadly, often minimizes marriage. They miss the beauty and the glory of it. The, the world will see, for instance, will see marriage as restrictive. You know the old ball and chain? How many of you have heard that before? Some will see marriage as optional. You know, there's other ways to get the benefits of it without all the risk and the commitment. Some see marriage as merely functional. It's just a convenient, practical arrangement so that we can get a tax deduction you know, so we can maybe combine our incomes and, and raise our standard of living. Or, or maybe we can team up so that we can raise some kids together. 
But this sort of thinking sadly drains marriage of its sacred significance. It fails to see marriage for what it truly is. It's like a guy using a high-performance sports car to store you know, his seasonal decorations. But while some may minimize marriage, there's another trap we can easily fall into. Others fall into the trap of idolizing marriage, seeing marriage as a savior, overloading it with a weight that it was never meant to bear. Some people approach marriage as a vehicle for our personal fulfillment, a way to make all of our dreams come true. There may be some of you in here today who believe deep down inside that the love of another could make you whole, could make you happy, could meet your deepest needs. But listen, marriage is not designed to do that. And if you expect it to, you'll be disappointed. Your marriage will be crushed under the weight of expectations that it cannot meet, expectations it was not designed to meet. If you think of marriage that way, You'll be crushed and you'll actually miss out on all the goodness and blessing that could have been enjoyed. So what are we to do? How do we avoid, and these are just two pitfalls, I'm sure there's others. How do we avoid thinking wrongly about marriage and therefore entering into it the wrong way? Well, today I want to address this issue from a biblical perspective. Because what we need is more than just advice. I'm not here this morning to give you marriage advice. There's a time and a place for that. And we'll talk about God's roles for husbands and women in coming weeks. But we need first and foremost a theology of marriage. We need to understand what it is. We need to understand what it is for so that we can glorify God as followers of Jesus who walk in the wisdom that he has revealed. We want to bring our minds and our hearts and our lives in submission to the word of God in conformity to the pattern that he has established. So we're going to answer just a couple questions this morning, hopefully, briefly, in the time we have. First, what is marriage? Second, what is marriage for? And then third, how do we bring our lives uh, into conformity to God's pattern? How do we respond to these truths? So first of all, what is marriage? I'd like to ask you to turn this morning. I know we've been in Genesis for over a year, but please go to Genesis chapter 2. What is marriage? How should we understand the biblical design and definition of the institution of marriage? In order to do that, we have to go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2 I want you to look in verse 18. This is after God's marvelous work of creation, making the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, and everything that is in it. And consider what happens in verse 18. After saying that everything is good, good, and very good, in chapter 1, verse 31, verse 18 of chapter 2, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. If you skip down to verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
couple of observations from this foundational passage in the book of Genesis. First, marriage was instituted by God in the garden. You say, no, duh, I'm not a preacher. I haven't gone to seminary. I could have told you that. I just read the verses with you. Great, but we need to repeat that. We need to see what it says, that marriage was instituted by God. What this means is that marriage is not simply a social construct. It's more than that. It's not simply a human tradition, something that our parents did and our grandparents did, something that's nice to take photos of and have a little family celebration. It's more than a human tradition. Marriage is a divine gift. And what this means is that marriage is sacred. It is sacred because of its source. And we are not invited or allowed to tweak marriage, to try to improve on marriage, to modify marriage, or try to redefine marriage. It is an institution that was part of the original created order. What that means is that it's not just for Christians. Marriage is foundational for all of humanity. We have to understand that first and foremost. But why did God institute marriage? Well, we see the answer in verse 18. The Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. After seeing that everything is good, good, and very good, God saw saw something that was not good, the fact that Adam was alone. And the solution to this is that God creates the woman out of Adam's side, gives her to him. God walks the first bride down the aisle. But what about Adam being alone was not good? Why would God evaluate this and say that it is not good? Well, we have to understand it's not about being lonely because Adam was not lonely. He had perfect fellowship with God, walking with him on a daily basis, talking with him face to face as a friend. I don't think Adam would have ever felt lonely. So there's something more to his being alone than simply companionship. Adam was made, if we go back to chapter 1, to reflect the image of God, to to bear God's image, to, to show the world a little bit of something of what God is like and to represent him in the world. But consider Adam had no one of like nature and like substance to enjoy union with. So how could he alone reflect the glorious fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, a perfect and eternal union that has been enjoyed and celebrated since eternity past? Consider that Adam had no one to serve, He had no one to love, no one to cooperate with. How could he reflect these relational aspects of God's nature? Therefore, Adam's ability to reflect the image of God was lacking. In addition, he had no one with whom to be fruitful and fill and subdue the earth, what God had called him to do in the garden. On his own, he was unable to accomplish God's purpose for mankind. And so the solution was the creation of one who is fit for him, someone who is corresponding to him, that shared his nature, a helper, someone who could share in his call to reflect God's glory. That is what it means by, not be, by being not good that Adam was alone. And this original marriage establishes a pattern for all generations to follow. Notice what Moses comments in verse 24. He says, therefore, that's a very important word, He's saying, because the first marriage was like this, 
because it had these purposes, because it was designed like this, because the first marriage was like this. All marriages are to follow this example. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus quotes this text when answering a question about marriage. And he looks at people and he says, have you not read? Have you not read what? Have you not read this passage from Genesis, the original marriage? That is supposed to establish a paradigm for all marriages. So let's look at this pattern. Consider this first marriage and consider what it should instruct us towards. We see very simply, first, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. A new family is established when two people are joined in marriage. We see that it is a man, singular, and his wife, singular, who are joined together. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman to be joined together. And and notice what they do. He leaves his father and mother, and he holds fast to his wife. He cleaves to her, as the King James puts it. They are stuck like glue. There is a deep level of personal commitment here. And the result of this is that they become, at the end of verse 24, one flesh. There is a deep union of heart and soul and body that Jesus says in Matthew 19 that God has joined together. You see, marriage is more than just a legal contract. Marriage, as we we watch marriage unfold throughout the rest of Scripture, it it comes to be understood as a covenant. In Ezekiel 16.8, in Proverbs 2.17, in Matthew, or Malachi, rather, 2, verse 4, we see the language of covenant used to describe the marriage relationship. A covenant is a solemn agreement where both parties are bound by promises and committed to certain obligations. This is a lot more than just two people agreeing to live together and share the bills. It is, a, it is to be a covenant relationship. And being a covenant means there's some implications. There's some implications. Marriage is to be permanent. There's a reason we say, till death do us part in our marriages. Jesus comments and says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's an implication of marriage being a covenant. Another implication is that marriage is to be pure. Sexual union is reserved for those who have entered into the marriage union. The positive call for a man to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, it's matched by the prohibition of seeking any physical intimacy outside of the marriage. The seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20, says you shall not commit Adultery. It's not the way the world likes to think of things. The world celebrates freedom, no boundaries, autonomy. But the biblical truth is that any sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. Jesus raises the bar for us in Matthew chapter 5, revealing that it's sinful to even entertain desires for someone other than your spouse. In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, In the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sexual purity 
is essential to the marriage covenant. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God takes very seriously the purity of the marriage covenant. Marriage is instituted by God. It is designed by God to be the covenant union of one man and one woman for life. A solemn commitment of exclusive and faithful love. And we could say much, much more about marriage. But this is really at the heart of what marriage is. We have to understand what marriage is. So that's the first question. What is marriage? But in light of what marriage is, secondly, what is marriage for? How should we understand the purpose of the marriage covenant? Well, first of all, we can understand with great gratitude that marriage is for the good of God's people. Marriage is a gift to be enjoyed. And as such, it is something we ought to delight in and thank God for. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 9 says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Marriage brings joy is a gift to be enjoyed that our good father gives to us. Marriage brings the joy of companionship. Although this is not exclusive to marriage, we can enjoy companionship uh, at different levels outside the marriage relationship. It is especially true of marriage. Ecclesiastes 4 says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. There is the, the, the joy and the blessing of companionship that God gives to us in the institution of marriage. Marriage also brings with it the joy of pleasure. For all the no's that we've already referenced, and there's many more, the no's that forbid sexual immorality, Scripture gives an abundant yes to the joy of physical intimacy in marriage. Proverbs 5.18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always in her love. It says in verse 19, and there's more verses that I probably won't read with some of the young children in the room. Uh, you read the book of the Song of Solomon, this entire book unabashedly celebrates the joy and the delight of romantic love that is expressed in physical intimacy. It's a gift that God has designed for our enjoyment, to show his goodness and his grace to us. But there's not just the joy of companionship and pleasure. Marriage also brings the joy and the blessing of procreation. Scripture always considers children to be a blessing and not a burden. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who finds or who fills his quiver with them. Marriage is intended to be the arena in which children are produced and raised and enjoyed. So marriage is for us in the sense that it is a gift to be enjoyed, but it is also for us in another sense. It is for us in that it is a means that God uses to grow us in holiness. 
God's will is that we become more and more like Jesus. Marriage is a means, not the only means, but a means to that end. Romans 8, 29 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. God planned it ahead of time. God's will for you and for me is to be conformed to the image of his son. That requires growth and holiness. And, and that's why, those of you who are married, that's why you got married, right? Is it that, guys, you bent down on one knee and, says, and said, will you marry me? And help me to become a more holy man of God. That's what you said, right? Okay, good. I'm not the only one who maybe forgot to include that little phrase when I proposed to my wife, Sarah. You know, that may not always be your first thought if you are approaching marriage or maybe in a marriage. But it is God's first thought. He wants to make us like his son. That is what he will do. He will accomplish that. Hebrews 12, verse 10, says that God, as a loving father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is not just a good thing. It's a necessary thing. It's an essential thing. And God uses marriage to help us become holy. You know, there's good things like that we always think of as being good. Things like vacations, those are good, right? We like those. Dessert, maybe the nap you're going to take after lunch today, those are good things that we enjoy. Those are good things that feel good. But then there's also things that are good because they're good for you, like exercise or going to the dentist or eating kale, so I'm told. I don't know about that stuff. Those are things that are good for you. God, being the wise father that he is, gives us marriage not only so that we can enjoy the delight of companionship and love and children, but also because living with another sinner, it's going to prove a great challenge to our selfishness, isn't it? It's going to be an attack on our pride. It will force us to grow in humility. Marriage exposes our blind spots. It stretches us, and it tests us in ways that otherwise we would never be tested. It gives us an opportunity to deny ourselves and to put the interests and the needs of another ahead of our own. It provides a 24-7 opportunity to serve and love and give, an opportunity and a calling that requires war against our sinful flesh, against our natural tendencies, because you and I are really good and don't need a lot of help, um, at being self-absorbed, self-seeking people. Marriage will challenge that. God's plan is to make us like Jesus. And marriage, like everything else, is intended to be part of this process. It's obviously not the only tool God can use. But if you are married, it will be one of the primary tools that God will use to develop holiness in your life. And friends, this is good for us. This is good for us. As Christians, we believe that the pursuit of happiness and holiness are actually linked together. I love reading J.C. Ryle, an old pastor that some of you might not be familiar with. But in his short little sermon entitled, Three Rules for a Happy Marriage, he says, Happy are they who in the matter of marriage observe three rules. The first is to marry only in the Lord and after prayer for God's approval and blessing. The second is not to expect too much from their partners and to remember that marriage is, after all, the union of two sinners and not of two angels. The third rule is to strive first and foremost 
for one another's sanctification. That big word means us becoming more holy, more mature, more established in our faith, more like Jesus. He says, strive first and foremost for one another's sanctification. And notice what this wise pastor points out. The more holy married people are, the happier they are. I think we all know that that's true, whether you're married or not, from our experience, that sin promises a lot that it can't deliver, and it always brings regret, it always brings pain, it always brings consequences, it always brings shame, it always damages relationships, it always causes distance. Friends, as God sanctifies us through some of the parts of marriage that don't always feel good, He's not just pursuing his glory. He's also giving us a gift of joy and happiness that only comes when we're conformed to the image of Christ. On one hand, the fact that marriage is intended to make us holy kind of lowers the bar. Marriage is not supposed to complete you. It's not supposed to satisfy your soul. And and the disappointments and challenges of marriage, listen, are actually good for us. Lowers the bar, perhaps, from the way some people see marriage, what it's supposed to do. But seeing holiness as the goal of marriage also raises the bar. Listen, God's calling for you and your marriage is much, much higher than simply having a happy marriage. God wants us to be something more than just compatible in our dysfunctions. God wants you to have a holy marriage. Perhaps that's a higher bar than you realized has been set for you and your spouse. So marriage is for our good. It is a gift to be enjoyed. It is a means to growth and holiness. But I want to get to this second point of how, of the purpose of marriage, because this is the one that really could have been the first, because it's more important. Marriage is ultimately not for us, but for the glory of God. This song is really not about you. Listen to Romans eleven thirty six: From him, through him, to him are all things, Paul writes. To him be glory forever, amen. He writes in Colossians 1.16, by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Marriage is for us in the sense that it's a gift that brings us joy and makes us holy. It's good for us. But ultimately, marriage is not about us. It exists, like all things, ultimately for God's glory. And I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 to see exactly how, in the highest sense, marriage is to display the glory of God. It's meant to to glorify God by displaying the beauty of the gospel. This could be an entire series of sermons on its own. For the sake of time, we're going to run through this fairly quickly. Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to look down at verse 31, right in the middle of this section about marriage where Paul is teaching husbands and wives how they ought to live. We'll spend more time in this chapter in the weeks to come. But Paul quotes that passage from Genesis 2 in verse 31. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And listen to what Paul says. This mystery, speaking to two becoming one flesh, he says, This mystery is profound 
And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says there is a deep, mysterious, sacred significance to marriage. The covenant of marriage is meant to point to Christ's union with his people. It is meant to point to his love for his church. Sinful people like you and me who've come to the foot of the cross and placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone to save us from our sins. Through faith, we are united with Christ. If you read the book of Ephesians, you see constantly that we are referred to as being in Christ. And Paul says this union of marriage being one flesh is meant to point to that union, that spiritual union of Christ and his church and the love and the grace and the mercy and the sacrifice that has been displayed in order to make that happen. Consider that relationship between Christ and the church. Consider the message of the gospel and how it gives shape to the marriage covenant. What Jesus did when he left the throne in heaven when he took on flesh and became a man, was born as a baby in a stable, lived a perfect life, suffered unjustly on the cross to take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin, laid low in a grave, the king of glory, buried in a tomb. That is sacrificial love. Jesus didn't owe us anything, but he loved us. And therefore gave himself for us to atone for our sins. Jesus told his disciples, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. In this, the love of God has been manifested or shown or displayed to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, there is no greater display of love in the history of the universe than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for undeserving, needy, helpless sinners. This is supposed to give shape to marriage. It's supposed to point to that kind of love, a love that gives in selfless sacrifice. Consider not just the sacrificial love, consider the grace and mercy displayed in the gospel that has resulted in this union we have in Christ. He forgave our sins. We are guilty of crimes against the king of glory, guilty of cosmic treason. We have violated his law. We have failed to uphold his righteousness. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, the psalmist writes, who could stand? None of us. We are all guilty. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Yet we have forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus. We've been spared the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation that we have rightly earned what we deserve. And friends, this is mercy, that God would not pour out his wrath upon us and instead, as Colossians says, nail our transgressions to the cross. This is mercy. This is mercy. And it's not just that God spared us from wrath in mercy. He also gave us his righteousness. Our sin is credited to Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You and I are absolutely bankrupt to stand before God. We have nothing to show. We can't pay the entrance fee to heaven, but Jesus can. And he clothes us in his righteousness, giving us what we lack 
so that we can be reconciled with God. This is grace, providing what we do not have, what we desperately need, and what we could never earn. This is grace. This is supposed to give shape to our marriages. Mercy and grace are to be the breathing in and the breathing out of our marriages. The gospel is the heartbeat to a a marriage that glorifies God by, by displaying this truth to the world. But consider also this union of Christ and the church tells a story of permanence and loyalty and faithfulness. Consider that Jesus never stops loving his church, that he never revokes his promises. Jesus never abandons his bride. He is faithful. He always has been. He always will be. And this is the story that our marriages are supposed to tell. They are to glorify God by displaying the beauty of the gospel. This is the purpose of marriage, the ultimate purpose. So how should these realities shape our lives? We've been talking this morning about theology. We've not been giving marriage advice about how you should work through conflict or the good way to you know, manage your finances or you know, different practices for dating and engagement. We haven't gone there. What we've done is try to give you a definition of what marriage is and what it is for, a theology of marriage. But if we don't respond to this, even in, in an initial sense, I don't think we fully grasp it. I want us to consider and reflect how should these realities shape our lives? Because you can just understand all this stuff and leave here, but if it doesn't change how you think and how you feel and what you do, then we are being like those hearers in the book of James who are not doers. And that would be a tragic failure. So first, we must, first of all, embrace God's definition and design for marriage. This is very simple, but it is very serious. We must embrace God's definition and design for marriage. Marriage is the joining together of one man and one woman in covenant union. It is to be marked by mutual love. It is to be exclusive and pure, and it is intended to be broken only by death. And although unpopular, this definition of marriage is glorifying to God. And it is good for humanity. And we can't compromise that. We simply can't. Secondly, we must embrace not just God's definition. We must embrace God's sacred purposes for marriage. You and I, for those of you who are married, are to find our happiness in a growing holiness. And you know what? That's actually for everybody, even if you're not married. All of us are called to pursue Christ-likeness. As our goal, if we are believers, if we know Jesus, we are to follow him and seek to become more like him. If you're married, we must consciously seek not only to grow in holiness, but also to conform our marriages to the shape of the gospel. It's not okay for us to be complacent, to tolerate certain dynamics in our marriage that are contradictory to the message of grace. It is not okay for us, as those who profess to belong to Christ, to walk away from our marriages, to break our covenant union, to be unfaithful, or to be selfish and self-seeking. Our marriages need to tell the story of the gospel. We need to consciously seek to conform our relationships to this standard. So let me ask you, do your goals and dreams for marriage conflict with God's? If so, there needs to be repentance We need to confess that, God, what I've been desiring and pursuing is not what you've commanded me to desire and pursue. We need to turn from that, to lay down our selfish desires, to lay down our idolatrous expectations, 
If your marriage is not shaped by unconditional love or selfless sacrifice and service, if it's not marked by the grace and mercy of forgiveness, then there needs to be a humble submission to God's will for your marriage. But finally, and this is very important, there's a last way in which I think we all need to respond to this message today. And this is whether you are um, not yet married. This is for you, even if you never end up being married. This is for you today if you are formally married. And this is for you today if you're happily married or if you're unhappily married. I think that covers all of us. Did I leave anybody out? Okay, this last point is for all of us, no matter what our station in life. We all must embrace the gospel message that marriage points to. If marriage is meaningful because of its significance, because of what it points to, then what it points to cannot be lost in a discussion of the particulars here on this earth. We need to see what the sign is pointing to. The gospel is a message of unconditional and eternal love. Not my love for my wife or her love for me. Not your love for your spouse or their love for you. Not some love from a human being that you're seeking and hoping to find. We have the eternal and perfect and pure, all-satisfying love of God that has been given to us in the person of Christ. And we need it. We need that more than we need marriage. I'll say that again because we need that, the love of Christ, more than we need marriage. The eternal love of God for us is far more significant than any human love could ever be. Though marriage is a gift that we receive with gratitude, it is not the only gift. And it is not even the best gift. There is a greater gift. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He gave his only son. Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. There is a deeper love that has been shown to us through Christ. And it is in him that we find what our hearts most desperately need. And if you're single or if you're married, no matter where you are, until your heart comes to rest in that, you will never find joy or contentment, not in singleness or in marriage. No marriage can provide perfect companionship. Not even the deepest pleasures of marital intimacy are eternal. They're but for a moment. Children can bring sorrow and difficulty as well as joy. Living with a sinner can be difficult. Loved ones, no matter how amazing they are, can be lost. Many of you know that. There's so many people in our church that have tasted the pain of loss. How do we deal with these painful realities? It's only by looking to Christ. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Marriage is temporary. It's ended by death at best. But God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. In Psalm 16, 11, it says, You, speaking to the Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The deepest joys and the greatest pleasures of this life 
can only whet our appetite for the glory and the joy and the satisfaction of being in the presence of God. It's meant to show us that we were made for something that nothing in this world can really satisfy. In John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He spoke more about this thirst to a woman at a well who'd been married six times and was still empty. Jesus says, I'm the only one who can satisfy the longings of your soul. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Marriage with all its pleasures, with all its blessings, is not the ultimate gift. And anyone who tries to find their identity or their ultimate happiness, comfort, or satisfaction in a human relationship will inevitably end up crushing that relationship with idolatrous expectations. Marriage is temporary, but the perfect love of God revealed to us through Christ is eternal. And we all, no matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've gone without, no matter what you've had and lost, no matter how insufficient, whatever it is that you may be holding on to, we all have access to the love of God. Jesus stands here today and offers himself to you to come and drink, to come and eat, to trust in him, and to receive him as your savior, your Lord, to become part of this collective bride called the church that has a perfect and eternal husband. The message of the gospel is a message of perfect, unconditional, unending love. But the message of the gospel is also a message of unmerited grace, a grace that is greater than all our sin. The fact that Christ would be united with us should cause us to wonder that God would love us like that despite our sin. The reality is we all need this message of grace today because none of us can live up to God's design for marriage perfectly. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And perhaps a message like this today that holds up the ideal of what marriage is to be, perhaps that's hard for you to hear because it reminds you of your sin reminds you of your failures, the ways that you haven't lived up to this, because none of us have perfectly. We're all idolaters. None of us loves like Jesus. Perhaps it's a good thing. It's definitely a good thing for us to be reminded this morning that we can never measure up to this standard. Because what that does is it pushes us not to rest and rely on our performance how good a husband I can be, or how good a wife you can be. It causes us to rely only on the grace of God. If you've never confessed your sin and received God's forgiveness, that's what you need to do today. Not asking you to go be a perfect husband or wife, and then, then God will love you, and then God will bless you, and then God will accept you. Know what you need is to come to Christ, and then allow him to change you into who he wants you to be. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you deal with the sting of guilt and regret because of your failures and sins, confess and then believe that you are forgiven and rejoice in the fact that God's grace has set you free from the failures of your past. But God's grace does more than forgive those who have sinned. It's also able to heal those who have been sinned against. Perhaps hearing a message like this is hard because of the way that others 
have not loved you, the way that others have rejected or abandoned you, the way that others have not served you and met real needs that you have. Friends, God's grace is enough for you. He's able to heal and to restore, turn to him. But it's not just that God's grace can forgive, that God's grace can heal as the comforter who gives comfort, but the grace of God can also empower us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. And we need that. If you and I are to live up to God's design and his his calling for marriage, we're going to need help because this is just too much for us to do in our own strength. But God promises to supply the strength that we need. 2 Timothy 2.1 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Marriage points to the gospel, to Christ's union with his church. And Jesus supplies everything that is needed for us to live the life he calls us to live. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Friends, we are just as needy for grace to live up to God's design for marriage as we are of the grace that saves us from hell. We need God's strength and his help. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that anyone will be able to faithfully build a God-glorifying, soul-sanctifying, joy-producing marriage. We can't do it without God, and we don't have to. He promises to enable us to do all that he calls us to do. I hope that as you leave here today, you have a new lens through which to look as you understand what marriage is and what marriage is for. This is the biblical foundation. And there's a lot more that could be said and that we will say, but we have to start here. My prayer is that we would, all of us today, embrace God's will for marriage and seek to rest in the glorious grace of the gospel that marriage points us to. God in heaven, as we consider this morning um, our needy hearts, our imperfect lives, we recognize that we are sinful people who can never perfectly live up to, you, to your standard. We thank you, God, for Jesus, for his perfect righteousness that is credited to us through faith. We thank you for his death on the cross that rescues us from the punishment and the consequences of our sin. God, we ask that you would renew our minds this morning through your word, that we would think biblically about marriage, that we would seek to bring our lives into conformity to your word, your will, so that you can be glorified. I pray that we would have the the wisdom and the maturity to be able to receive the gift of marriage with gratitude without focusing more on the gift than the giver. I pray that we would look beyond marriage to the one who gives it to us, or perhaps to the one who has not given it to us. I pray that our ultimate hopes would be anchored in you, that we would seek satisfaction in you and you alone, that you would be the highest object of our desire. Lord, forgive us for our idolatry, for seeking things in this world that only you can provide. I pray that we would seek to worship you, to honor you, to treasure you and prize you above all else. And Lord, if there's any here today who don't know you, and so much of this today perhaps seems confusing for them, I pray that they would understand that their deepest need this morning is to receive for the first time the saving grace, the unconditional love that you offer us in Christ. I pray that today they would repent of their rebellion against you. 
I ask God that they would receive your love, your forgiveness, the cleansing that comes through the blood of Jesus, and that they would become part of the collective bride and join us as we celebrate your love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.